0: Please note that this conversation took place in early 2022. There may be references to events, status of a film, or to someone's position at an organization that was true at the time. This in no way diminishes the value or relevance of this podcast. Enjoy.
1: And I would say also for like any young filmmakers that are out there that are interested in documentary filmmaking, I mean, it could be a kind of fun exercise to imagine someone making a film about you. And if they were to come to you and say, you know, Jim, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I think, uh, you know, let's, let's do this. And it's sort of like, you know, there's so much more that you don't even know. And uh, the only way you'll know is by being in my universe with me and then figuring out what elements of my universe are universal.
0: Welcome everyone to the Art of Documentary Podcast. I'm your host, Jim LeBrecht. I'm excited to talk today with Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker, Garrett Bradley. We'll talk about her career and so much more, including her remarkable film, Time, and her three-part docuseries, Naomi Osaka. Filmed over two decades, Time follows Fox Rich as she strives to raise her six sons while fighting for her husband's release from the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Naomi Osaka is a three-part docuseries about the life of one of the most gifted and complex athletes of her generation offering insight into the tough decisions and amazing triumphs that shaped Naomi Osaka as a superstar and a young woman. Welcome Garrett, it's great to have you.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me here.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd love to kind of start off our conversation. If you would tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and what it was like.
1: I grew up in New York City in downtown Manhattan. My parents are both painters, abstract painters from slightly different generations. My dad's about 20 years older than my mom and, you know, really approached their practice actually in, I think, really different ways. My mom works a lot with language and my dad, you know, is coming from kind of a different school of painting altogether. You know, it's funny because when when people ask me that question about growing up, I mean, in my mind, and I I don't know if everyone in my generation feels this way, but I really divide it between pre-9-11 and post-9-11. I was in high school... When 9 11 happened, and I remember, like, uh, I really struggled in high school. I had a hard time <laughs> and was kind of always in trouble. And so I had to go to school early that day to go talk to the principal. My stepdad, we took the train together and went and had like a meeting. I don't even remember what the meeting was about, but I, then I had to, after the meeting, I had to call my mom and kind of tell her, you know, what the meeting was about, everything was okay. And she was like, Garrett, you know, You'll never believe some, like, asshole just flew into the World Trade Center, you know? Like, he was probably, like, wasted or something, you know? And I was like, wow, that's, like, crazy. And I, I was in school at Brooklyn Friends, which is a Quaker school in Brooklyn Heights. And I remember hanging up with her, and then, you know, I didn't see her, my family, basically, until, like, a week later after that. And, of course, we realized what all of that was. And because I was in a Quaker school, um, and I, I can't remember if it was 30 minutes of silence a day that we had or if it was 30 minutes of silence a week, but— For me, it was sort of the beginning of understanding meditation and silence and contemplation and the importance of that and collectivity. I wasn't aware of that at the time as a young person, but I realized as I got older, it was something that played an important role in my life. And I remember all of us sitting in the sort of meeting room with the world like exploding around us. And so that was a kind of definitive marking point, I think, in my life as a young person, specifically in regards to what New York City meant to me. I also felt like there was a really distinct moment where surveillance became such a dominant part of our life in the city. I mean, there were always like, you know, taxi drivers that were actually undercover cops. Like there was always like that kind of thing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That you would just see like wild shit sometimes happen, but it wasn't like you had a camera on every corner, you know, and it was almost like it really became Gotham. It became this like glass, silver police state You know, after that point. And it might be part of why I think when I when I left when I was 18, why I didn't really feel a huge urge to go back. My curiosity just continuously kept bringing me to other places, you know.
0: Where did you go when you left New York City?
1: I went to Smith College and I studied religion. That's what I got my degree in. I'd gone to college thinking I was going to major in art history. I mean, I loved looking at images and I had this amazing teacher in high school, Mark Wenzel. History and, and art history, both of those things, I just, I really gravitated towards them when I was in school. And so it felt like a natural thing for me in college to, to kind of go there. But actually when I was in school, I found myself being really interested in the stories behind the images, behind the paintings. And a lot of those stories were religious stories. And that's what brought me into the religion department, into philosophy. I was making films at that point, but I was i was actually, I became sort of obsessed with the way in which image making had a different status depending on sort of what religious sect or philosophy you were looking at. So like looking at Judaic philosophy, there's, there's a real kind of emphasis on the absence of image making around God, that it's almost sacrilegious to try to sort of create an image around God. Whereas when you look at sort of, and I'm using the term Hinduism as sort of an umbrella term, but you look at sort of the faith that exists within Hinduism, and it's so much about sight and about seeing. And there's even a word, darshan, which is sight as act of prayer. You know, and so you see a lot of the gods and the goddesses, their eyes are large because it's really about eyesight as as a form of faith. And there's all these amazing, like 1970s, like super tripped out films about darshan, you know, Hindu films and Abar, Akbar and Anthony is one film that stands out. And I don't know, this is sort of a long wedded answer. But even when I was in school, filmmaking was always for me, what I knew was my way of articulating and communicating with the world. But my mom, you know, she was really adamant with me about not studying film at that point in my life, because she just was sort of like, what are you going to say, you know, if you if all you know is filmmaking, you know, you have to know about other things in the world. I've always been really thankful to her for that foresight.
0: In looking at your projects, Time and Naomi Osaka, if I really kind of think about it, there is a meditative quality about it. We don't rush through these documentaries.
1: Mm.
0: When did you first pick up a camera?
1: I was 16 when I picked up my first camera. My stepdad gave me a camcorder for Christmas. It was this Hi-8 camcorder. My grandmother actually, you know, it's funny, this is the first time I'm actually really making this connection, but I recently found like a bunch of tapes of that my grandmother had taken when I was born. And I mean, at the time, this was in like the 80s, I mean, she had like a, you know, like a camcorder that was like half my body size, you know. <laughs> Now, I'm going to answer this question actually in a little bit of a a long-winded way, but I think it's important that, you know, because you asked me earlier about how maybe my parents as artists had influenced me, and and they certainly did, I think, in terms of how to build a life around your craft and how to understand the distinction between your craft and your career, and that those two things sometimes intertwine and sometimes don't, and you never give up your craft, (laughs) you know, even if it's not paying the bills. And I think from my grandmother, I was able to actually really understand how to see. I remember her taking me when she'd come into town. She'd take me to the Met and talk to me actually about the paintings, about the religious stories that were behind the paintings and instill in me the power of narrative. And I'm also, I'm really, I'm dyslexic and I really, uh, you know, yeah, as I said, school was really challenging. And so when I was given this camcorder in high school, it was I think the first time I was able to share with the world what I was seeing and how I was seeing it, it was a way for me to sort of act on my curiosity in a way that was also generous, which I think this might be a debate I'm I'm open to being wrong about it, but I actually think everything we do is is for everybody. I think we do inherently. I don't really think we ever make things for ourselves. I think we're here to share, you know, and to contribute. And when we feel like we're doing that effectively, it's like feeling like you're being loved. You know, communication, effective communication is is love, feeling understood. And so, yeah, I just started. I, my, my father, you know, my parents were married for a year and my dad's studio was on Green Street, right around the corner from this restaurant called Jerry's, which is not there anymore. And there was a big post office, which is now the Apple Store on Spring Street in Soho. I would go to this bar. I would go to Jerry's and meet him there and film him (laughs) and ask him questions about all sorts of stuff that I just wanted to know about him and about his relationship with my mom because they didn't, you know, they weren't close. And then I'd go home and ask my mom kind of the same questions, and it became this like cross-examination, <laughs> you know. And and that turned into my first film. And Andy Rotman, who was my teacher in high school, he showed me how to use this thing called the Da Vinci, which was a editing equipment. And I cut it together, and he said, hey, you know, there's these things called film festivals, and there's this Quaker film festival, and you should submit your film to this Quaker film festival. <laughs> And the film was called Bebop Fidelity, and I submitted it to the Quaker Film Festival, and Stanley Crouch actually was on the jury, and it won the first prize. And it was the first time that I felt like I was good at something. It was like the first time that I felt like I have a purpose, <laughs> you know? And I think for that reason alone, just maybe because someone was like, Gary, you're good at this. I was like, cool, this is all my ass is doing for the rest of my life. I'm not doing <laughs> shit. <laughs> you know, I'm going to try.
0: You know? you know, I kind of think a lot of us in the arts, be it film or visual arts or theater, I think that when we find ourselves having a career, it's like we found our calling. I mean, speaking for myself, I didn't think that I was artistically inclined at all until I started doing sound design for theater. And somehow, you know, I can't draw to save my life, but I had a relatively you know, natural acuity to it that with practice, practice, practice and doing it refined And I think that what you were talking about, you know, not doing it for just yourself, but everybody, when you were talking about that, I I think that also it's a sense of freedom that I could express out to the world, that I was, you know, something that came from my heart, which that is my work. You know, you're being able to go beyond your body. I don't know what your experience is, but when everything is really, really clicking, when you're editing or directing, you get the sense that you're like soaring with eagles. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you just like you're completely free of whatever really encumbers you, especially when you're in that zone, mm. when you're really working. And for, for me, especially somebody with a physical uh, you know, disability, mm. I, I've reflected upon this a couple of times that, you know, yeah, when I am totally in the zone behind that mixing console, mm. the whole the rest of the world just falls away.
1: I like that you see it as birds. I feel like it's, in my mind, it's like constellations, you know? Uh It's like you're making connections, you know, for people. And, you know, it's funny. Sorry, I was just thinking, like, how trippy live sound is, like, for theater. Like, that must be, that's like a whole kind of incredible to mix sound, like, live sound. I'm I'm probably making it sound deeper than it is, but I just think, because that process of being in the studio and mixing something, obviously, is such a different ecosystem than... Doing it live, I mean, I guess that's like The Beatles or some shit. We could talk about The Beatles. Let's not talk about The Beatles. I'm good at that.
0: (laughs) Well, I I mean, you you know, the thing about film for for me is that you can be rather precise. You're in sync unless you screw something or somebody screws something up. But in theater, you have to build a flexibility because the show, you know, actors are different every night. You just kind of approach it that way that you have ways to make it totally flexible or as best you can. For theater was a great training ground for working eventually in film because you you work with different directors all the time, different you know Shakespeare on Mars. You know, you have to really start thinking well outside you know the box. And sometimes you know, folks say, "Hey, how, how can I get into doing sound, or how do I get into doing almost anything?" And sometimes theater is a can have less of a threshold to go through. And you know what you learn there is important. I mean, it's communication; it's talking. You know, your work goes beyond filmmaking. You've done narrative work. You've had art exhibitions. And I was wondering whether you felt like there was kind of, is there like a common theme in your work? Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. Let's keep going.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I think the only reason why I might know how to answer this in part is because you know, you always get that question, well, what, do you, what do you want to make next? What are you interested in? And it really kind of forces you to be like, well, why am I interested in anything? And what, what am I interested in? And that kind of forces you to kind of look backwards. I mean, I think for whatever reason, I've always been really interested in the sort of double-sidedness of the truth. The first film that I made with my parents was inadvertently really about trying to understand what the truth was right? And how those two things can be seen in really different ways from two different people. And thinking about the film itself sort of becoming this third reality, right? That we we live in a world sometimes with apparent duality, but reality, I think, is somewhere in between those things, you know? And reality is sometimes about bringing those two binaries together and understanding that there's a third revelation out of that binary. And I think... Anything I'm making to a certain extent is invested in that possibility and in that idea. I think being in the South for, you know, 11 plus years was really an effort to also go back to understanding a truth for our nation, for our country. Understanding landscape as a form of genesis and being able to see the past in a way that was really clear for better and for worse. Whereas in, in bigger cities like in Los Angeles and in New York, Those are cities that are really focused, that have always been really focused and invested in the future. And so it can be harder to see history. It can be harder to see the past. So it's harder to kind of sometimes heal the past (laughs) and work through it when it's constantly being built upon. You know, it's like a ziggurat or something.
0: I mean, a lot of it is about identity, I think, especially with Naomi Osaka. It's this incredible view of kind of her evolving. And she talks about her identity and and really blossoms. I mean she goes from one spot where she kind of says there's people that are depending on me, family and people that have been working with her, and maybe it's better for me to not rot the boat or, or not. But in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, it was like, no, I need to use my notoriety for the betterment of of you know, to make sure that this that just doesn't go by the wayside, but that we keep the focus here and It wasn't so much about tennis. It was about this young woman and how she was navigating. Even somebody older than her would be really tough to handle, you know, instant notoriety or very quickly having notoriety. And I guess one of the questions I have that relates to both time and Naomi Osaka is how does one gain the trust of our subjects?
1: I mean, the first thing, just quickly, I just want to go back to this thing around identity because I actually think, and it does lead into this question that you're asking me, you know, even though I'm I'm saying that there is a fascination on my part around American history and around the dynamics that exist that are often rooted in gender and in race, I also think that we're in a sort of problematic moment right now. I think from an industry perspective where there is such an emphasis on identity that, that we kind of lose sight also of form, that to be an artist, you're doing a lot more with your work than just presenting identity. And there's a lot of complication in the emphasis of the body. And so I, I actually, you know, when it, when it comes to building relationships with people and also thinking frankly about why I want to make the work that I want to make, it starts off first by saying no one is a subject in my mind. It's really about going on a journey with somebody and establishing a common ground about what it is that we feel we can contribute to the world. What is it that we feel the world needs right now? What's not being said or what's being said incorrectly or what's being said well, but could be further supported. And that starts with a series of conversations. So. You know, with the exception of Osaka, every project I've made has has happened out of fruition in my real life. When I made Alone, that came out of making my first film, Below Dreams, which, you know, was cast with people entirely from Craigslist, who I stayed very close with. One of which ended up being arrested for a nonviolent offense and waiting in a private prison pre-trial for over a year and a half. And his partner became a single mother overnight and had to figure out how to maneuver through the system on her own without any prior experience. And so that's where the film came out of bearing witness to that and wanting to support my friend's experience, right? And in the process of trying to do that, I you know, went online and found resources and found this organization called Friends and Families of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. And Gina Womack, who's the, the director and co-founder of that organization, picked up and said, well, Lon should speak with Fox. And so we filmed this brief moment with Fox and Lon together, offering a, a form of support to one another. And so I got to know Fox and in the process of making a loan. That then is what led to time, right? So I wasn't going out to the world trying to make films about incarceration. they are films about love, first and foremost. And and about family. And so I think that intentionality is so important in building trust and it's about common intentionality. It isn't about me projecting an idea onto anybody. It's about saying, how can we do this together? And then my job is to kind of, I think, distill those conversations into visual terms. With Osaka, It was a really different experience because, as you said, you know, I'd never met her before. And so that, for me, was, you know, working in sort of a for higher context was a really— and in a documentary context was a really different thing. And so I tried my best to be in a place of observational support, you know. I didn't go into it really with any kind of clear pitch on what it was going to be. And I noticed that she was asking herself really deep, profound questions about the direction of her life— that the world was also starting to ask itself. And so there, it became actually this really natural way in which her environment also became a character, right? Like what were the things that were prompting her own self-inquiry? It allowed me to use the spaces that she was in as an explanation for where her own inquiry and journey was really coming from and what was prompting it. That kind of in a nutshell is what what the process was, and I think that the trust element of it came from exactly that. I'm not here to tell your story, and I'm also, as a filmmaker, really uninterested in making something that's just a sort of chronological recap of everything we've seen in the press and then getting some talking head interviews of how you felt about it. You know, what is the immediacy and real-time experience of you in your life, and how Can our ability to see that help us to not only empathize with you as a person, which is we all should have empathy, right, but can also help us to understand our connection to you, that we're all connected, that when the stakes are so high in life, sometimes we feel like we can't have a voice. Sometimes we feel like we can't speak our mind because there's so much to lose. And that's something everybody can relate to. I can't stand up to my boss. I can't address this thing that's happening with my coworker or even in relationships or even within the home. These are dynamics that happen everywhere. And even though Naomi is a global person, she's asking herself exactly the same questions. And one might say that she she might feel that she has even more to lose than anybody else, right? So what does it mean for her to take that chance? And how can that then support everyday people? whether they're interested in tennis or not.
0: I think that there's, and maybe it's easier when you get older, a freedom to not have to quite worry about those kinds of confrontations or, you know, living in the closet. I understand that from a disability standpoint, and maybe you do also, that maybe understanding that you had dyslexia, but it's a hidden disability. And so is it better to not talk about it or reveal it or is it better to to do that? I think that hopefully as we establish ourselves in the world and we have a track record, it's easier to say, look, I have this going on or, you know, this is what I've been hiding about myself because I was concerned about the ramifications of it.
1: I mean, I would say also it's like we're living in such a weird time where on one hand things are just heavily scripted, where in order to say anything, you need to kind of know everything about what you're saying on some level, right? And then at the same time, there's zero accountability for just being reckless with your words. And so I do think that speech, freedom of speech and the way in which we articulate the things that we need, the things that we're experiencing, the things that we're seeing are in a very nuanced and complex place right now. And I think that the only way to kind of move through it with as much grace and honesty as possible is to share just from our own personal experience. You know, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically from a, from a filmmaking standpoint, you know, when you're making work with people whose lives and stories are going out into the world. It isn't to assert an opinion, even necessarily. It's really about an experience and a journey.
0: It kind of harkens back to something we started talking about, is that you believe that documentary filmmaking should really be collaborative. And whereas other folks is like, oh, I, I wouldn't show a cut to them until I'm done. Or, but that for you, it's we're doing this together. And that having agency, everyone having agency, it becomes much more honest and trusting and open and authentic.
1: So I want to put an asterisk next to agency because I think it starts again with sort of an agreed upon and transparent intention. Why do we want to do this? And then once that's been established, it helps for people who are in front of the camera to understand why you're making the choices that you're making. So it isn't so much about every step of the way I'm saying Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about this? It's more about, at that point, hopefully you're in a place where you're in agreement about the intention being articulated in a visual space by all means necessary. And then there's trust in me as a director to accomplish that from a visual standpoint. And then once you get into the editing process, I mean, I don't share anything until I feel like it's almost done, until I don't feel like there's really anything more I could do to make it better. And then I share the work. And then it's a conversation of, is this still our intention that we talked about a year ago? Does this resonate with that intention? That conversation doesn't end. I mean, then when you sell the film, when you put it out into the world, when you're dealing with the marketing, when you're dealing with the trailer, that that same question always has to return. Is this our intention? Is this what we agreed upon two years ago now? That's where agency comes in for me. And and I'll be more specific. When we were making time, the intention was to show how hope was articulated within one family. And my job was to then figure out, well, what does hope look like to them in everyday life? You know, how is hope articulated in actionable and in cinematic terms that everybody can digest and see on camera? And so I'd like to think that every single thing that I shot was in one way or another speaking directly to that word. And that's exactly the same thing that happened then once we started editing. How is this scene speaking to Hope? How is this piece of archive speaking to Hope? How is the music doing that? How is the sound doing that? So that's a very different kind of process than, I think, like a co-direction, right? I think that that's not how I work at all.
0: That really explains things a lot better for me. I think that... Everyone's process is a little bit different. I mean, that's, you know, that's why there are millions of colors in the in the rainbow, right? It's just <laughs> we're not in the rainbow. Well, anyway. <laughs> you understand what I'm trying to get at. I got you. You know, I, it's, you know, one of the things I learned very early on is like, you know, if you if create a piece of art that everybody loves, that's not good.
1: That's advertising.
0: Yeah, you just, <laughs> it just simply isn't, you know? For the few people out there that maybe haven't seen Time, how do you describe your film?
1: Oh, I hate questions like that, but I, I, I think I've become good at this one. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know why? You know why? It makes me so insecure because it's like part of my brain just wants to be like, you know, it's about the fucking universe, man. It's about like the whole world. It's about like, it's, <laughs> it's about all of it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. No, I appreciate the question. I'm just, I just am, I'm not good at it. I mean, yeah, it's about a lot of things. It's centered around this family matriarch, and we're really kind of following her journey over the course of 21 years in her effort to reunite her family. Her husband is put in Angola State Prison for a numerical life sentence for a first-time offense, and it's about, you know, how do you keep a family together during that time period? And it wasn't, you know, I'll say that when we were filming, it, it really wasn't about will she be successful in bringing him back home. You know, of course, when you're making a documentary, it's not only, I think, kind of useless to a certain extent in terms of your process, at least in my opinion, because it's really about the immediacy of the moment and how do you you maximize the immediacy of the present moment. It's not, you know, anticipation is, is slightly unethical in my mind. So how do you create a workflow and a system that allows you to be as flexible as possible without needing to know that's what the craft is? And again, that actually goes back to intentionality because, you know, not knowing if Robert would be released within the time frame of our making the film or ever, it only further emphasized the importance of what are we doing today? What does every day look like? And if I have to stop filming because of a deadline or because of budget reasons or because of whatever, I know that I can make a film out of hope.
0: You know, certainly it centers on incarceration and, you know, the damage to families and such, but indeed, you know, there's so much hope and love. There's so much love. And for Fox, for her for Robert, her husband, and for her children, and for herself. And there's this wonderful journey of seeing her continuing to kind of work on on that or consider that where, you know, she was involved with this bank robbery. But she had a much shorter sentence than Robert because she took the deal. But there's this incredible scene at church where she kind of talked about, you've talked to the bank tellers, try to find peace with them and apologize. But have you apologized to your family? It's just a, it's one of the more incredible moments. I just, you know, because you think after all that amount of time and she certainly is someone that really thinks very intentionally.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's funny, I mean, thinking also just kind of about, it's just reminding me kind of like with Osaka, you know, there was a reality in which that show could have been really focused on the highs and lows of winning and losing, That, that that's sort of like what we're supposed to focus on. But what I, and I learned so much in the process of making it because, you know, it's, it's such a mental sport. It's really a sport about your emotional condition and where you are on any given day your success as an athlete, as a tennis player, is really you get to where you can get physically and then it's just your mind. How is your mind running you? And it's one of the only sports where you can't ask for help once you're on the court. And if you're not, if your headspace is in any kind of way off, it's going to affect your play. That also then gave us, I think, a really exciting way to think about how to represent headspace in cinematic terms. (laughs) I found the best way to try to articulate her headspace was to show her surroundings, you know, was to show the environment around her and how that environment was affecting her emotionality and then what the sort of domino effect of that was with her play and vice versa. That, that's really what I mean by also just really being in the present moment and, and not trying to go into things with a, with a pitch necessarily.
0: Let me, let me jump into a couple of maybe more kind of technical things a little bit. Time was all in black and white. And that's obviously a very conscious decision. And I'd love for you to kind of share what your thinking was behind that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny is that it's, I'm not colorblind, I can can see in color, but I actually, when I think about the film, like my work, I really can't see it in color. So it's really not like a conscious choice, actually. (laughs) It's really (laughs) just, it's just like, it's just what it wants to be, you know? I mean, my first film, Below Dreams, was in color. You know, I mean, there is a sort of practical chronology of black and white. So I was making a short film called America that was really looking at uh, cinematic processes from the turn of the century. And I, I had initially thought about limiting myself from a technical standpoint to the technology that was available in 1913. So that meant it had to be on film, it had to be silent, it had to be in black and white. Those were some of the like basic parameters. At one point, I was gonna be working with similar lenses and cameras, and then I was like, fuck that, we're not doing that shit. It's like, crazy. Um, and, uh, and then I also was like, you know, got a flatbed, I was gonna cut and I was like, I'm good. We're gonna edit on Premiere, <laughs> you Yeah, know? <laughs> like, you know? That took about five years to make that project. And I was making alone, at a certain point there was overlap between America and Alone. I just I could not see it in color. Like my my I just was seeing in black and white. So Alone became black and white, you know? And then time, you know, I time is the sister film to Alone. I hope that they will always exist together in time and space, you know. And so when we went into shooting, there was no conversation around how it was going to be shot or what it was gonna look like. It was just gonna be the same thing that we, you know, that I developed in in Alone. You know, there, there's something you can see, like, I think it was like Yoshi Yamamoto talked about how he, with his clothing, he cut, you know, he likes the black and white because you can really see the, sort of the shape and form of things in a certain kind of way. And I that really resonated with me. And I, I just think you can, see, you know, there's something about color that just kind of muddies it up sometimes. It just kind of makes it just, it's a lot of excessive information that I don't always feel like, for myself, I don't really feel like I need, you know, and and back in the day… You know, we can't forget, like, there was only one option, you know? And then when color was out in the world, it was like, oh, black and white isn't commercially viable anymore. But then color became the standard, right? And I, and I think it's important for us to remember, like, how young filmmaking is. I would argue that we are way too young to have standards on any level. I was going to say, too, like, just to be to be more specific, like, around time, like, when I was shooting that, you know, again, I, I thought it was going to be just another a short film, you know, around 13 minutes, the same, same amount of time as Alone. When we were done filming and Fox, you know, handed over, like, 100 hours of her personal home archive, which I wasn't aware of while we were filming, all of that archive was in color. And I did, for a moment— think about what it would mean to cut it all together and and make it a color film. But a few things started to happen that really, I think, supported and emphasized its need to be in black and white, which was two things. One, part of the premise of hope, one of the things that I felt came out of this idea around hope was that all tenses of time, the past, the present, and the future, all exist in one space— Like our bodies don't feel and understand actually the distinction between the past and the future. When we think about something, when we remember something, it becomes the present on a cellular level in our body. How could the film also function in that same way when we're dealing with a family that is oscillating between the supposed past and present and future? So formally, in terms of its construction, that was something that Gabe and I worked on a lot. The beauty of it is that when we were going through all this archive, again, the intentionality of it became so critical because it meant that anything I was choosing needed to tie to this question of hope. And if it didn't fit into hope, it wasn't going to be there. Which means that the chronology of the film could let go of, I think, the falsehood of linearity. Nothing is really linear, life is not linear. And it meant that we could actually construct something that felt the way life really does. But when it was in color, you felt the form, you felt the texture and the materiality in a way that really pushed against those conceptual notions. The black and white allowed it to feel like a river instead of a a quilt or a series of, of stones that you're stepping to and from. And then when we added the music, it couldn't hold the music with the color. It was too much. It was too much information.
0: Wow. Indeed, you really kind of answered for me kind of my questions around the structure of time in that because we are going back to different points in time, either the present day or different moments that were in Fox's videos that she shot. And there's nothing really chronological really about that footage, but I so much more understand it now. I'm not, I'm not somebody that isn't... Uh, willing to say I you know I didn't get everything initially or anything I just I'm just a guy and <laughs> and when you think about memory and time and what you said about it bring up a memory brings into the present that just totally makes everything fall into place for me
1: oh thank you for the question
0: so you also mentioned someone you were saying when you were working on time
1: Gabe Rhodes it was the first time I'd ever worked with an editor was was working with Gabe I love editing I came to editing just out of, you know, I didn't have any resources to hire an editor. I didn't even know what that was. You know, it was just a natural thing for me to shoot my own stuff. And I had a computer and I could edit. You know, the lack of resources allowed me to actually really, I think, develop a language for myself that I'm, I'm very thankful for. And it was, it was scary actually working with an editor for that reason. Because I was, you know, this is something Gabe and I talked about a lot. Was like, how do I retain my fingerprint on something in this way? And it sounds like a naive question, but it was such a learning curve for me, you know, and I learned so much from Gabe in terms of just story and, you know, my own tendencies and and how, you know, because I really felt like I had reached sort of a glass ceiling a little bit with my work. In order to be a better filmmaker, I needed to open up the collaborative process. I needed to be working with people in a way that I had never been able to before. So it was, it was amazing.
0: So let's talk about the music in time. It starts off with kind of solo piano, eventually start adding on more instruments like an organ. And near the end of the film, there's vocalizations that are added to it. So I'm just kind of curious about how you worked with the composer. How did things develop?
1: Jameson Shaw, who I've worked with uh, on several films, who I love, he did the very end portion of the film. And then all the other music is actually from an album that was released in 1963 by Emma Hoy, who's an Ethiopian nun. She's, I believe, 98 years old. I was really struggling with the music and music is what drives the editing process for me. It also is, you know, I'm, I'm usually kind of figuring out the language of the film before I start shooting it by listening to music and figuring out what the music of, like, thematically, what that's going to be. And I couldn't hear it, like, for this film. I mean, I, I, I was—one of my favorite soundtracks of all time is uh, Neil Young's uh, Dead Man.
0: Me too. Really? Me too. Absolutely. <laughs> Dude. <laughs>
1: It's, like, the fucking best. Like, it's the best. And then when you hear about how he did it, you know about how he how you just, like, sat in that room and just, like, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I was listening to that. I was literally throwing that shit onto all our cuts and just be like, this is fucking perfect, man. Let's just go. <laughs> We're good. We're done. <laughs> and then I think it was literally, I mean, like, three or four months before we needed to deliver the film— I was on YouTube and I have all these like Ethiopian playlists and like the algorithm just handed this or it was the universe. I don't know which one. It depends on how you want to see it. But handed me this song, Mother's Love. And I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is incredible sounding. Right. And so Gabe and I threw it in there. We, we started listening to the whole album. It just was so perfect. It was like meant to be. Right. But it wasn't until I started to do a little bit more research around Emma Hoy and her story That it felt just like kismet, like it was meant, it was just meant to be. Hoy had come from a really wealthy family in Ethiopia and was then a prisoner of war and then was trained in classical Western music. And instead of sort of making a career out of her musicianship, she decided to go back to Ethiopia and become a nun. And so she agreed to record this one album, you know, again, in 1963 of all years to raise money for an orphanage. And so that's what was on YouTube. And Kellen Quinn, one of our producers, it's incredible. He was able to contact the foundation and they watched the film. And Emma Hoy, who uh, I believe is at the time at least was living in Jerusalem, watched it and, you know, gave us the blessing to, to have her music in there. And I just, I just was thinking, you know, it's like these two women, like Fox and Emma Hoy together, you know, who are so brilliant in their own ways, like being able to bring them into shared space was just something about the universe, man, honestly. It was just, I can't even say that I, I don't know any other way to describe it.
0: I mean, I think part of being an artist is simply being able to recognize something that crosses your path. It doesn't all just come from intention and I'm going to write this piece of music and this is how I'm going to shoot things. It's like all of a sudden, you know, that there's images here that I just want to capture because it's really getting me at this moment, right, with my camera or like coming across this music. So I think we have to always remain a bit open to what the universe puts in front of us. Totally. I think young, young children tend to have that. Everything in the world is kind of new to them, and they're very, very open. And what I like about my work is that, I, especially when I'm mixing, I'm doing a job, right? But I'm playing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm trying things. I'm throwing stuff up there to see whether it's going to work. You know, how is my heart reacting to something? And, you know, may we always find a way to maintain that kind of curiosity or, or openness or welcoming for things that we've never experienced before.
1: I think that's what creativity is, is it's problem solving, which is also why it's not exclusive to people who call themselves artists. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I mean, we're all artists.
0: This is going to be kind of like a, maybe a Reader's Digest uh, question for you. So. But like, what is the best advice you were ever given as an artist or, or as a documentarian or simply as a person?
1: It's funny. I don't know if the advice that I have in my head are things that people said to me or if they were things I was lucky enough to observe. But I think, especially as a woman, as a Black woman, you know, you find yourself in a lot of sort of like gaslighty situations in the world, <laughs> you know? And, and when you're a director, when you're a filmmaker, you're, you're constantly in a place of self-doubt, in a place of self-questioning. And I think part of being a leader is being honest about that. And finding a way to balance what it means to bring people together towards a unified vision despite all the variables. I think trusting yourself is, is really important. And I think that the, the times that I've not trusted myself have been where the biggest mistakes have happened. And I know this sounds corny, but I think being kind is really important. You know, like you just, you can't make anything by yourself and, I, and people want to feel valued and I've found, you know, especially when you're a young filmmaker and there's, you know, no one's really making money, no one's like, no one's really got shit. All you've got is respect.
0: That's a wonderful, sweet answer. And I think it ties into a lot of what we've talked about about hope, yeah. about love, and, you know, respect and having faith in yourself. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate this conversation and your willingness to really open up about yourself and your process. And I, I, I know that it's gonna be really um, interesting but helpful to a lot of people to hear, which is what I hope the goal is of this podcast series. So yeah. I wanna thank you for being here with me.
1: Thank you, Jim. I so appreciate the opportunity and, and for your questions as well. It really uh, I'll be thinking about them today some more.
0: This has been The Art of Documentary. Thank you to our host, Jim LeBrecht. You can stream Garrett Bradley's Time now on Amazon Prime. Next time, we'll be speaking to Roger Ross Williams about his films Apollo, Life Animated, and more. Thanks for listening.
1: This series was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.